probably about 15 pages of notes to do like 45, 50 minutes. I have like 22 tonight. So I think I'm just gonna go and see how it goes. And maybe we'll split it up and backtrack it next week for everyone else that wasn't here. Um, so it isn't incredibly long because this is a part that we're going through and there's a lot in it. Um, the last lesson, I don't even have the intro today, there's too much. The last lesson, um, we started chapter 5 and we talked about the slave, the debtor, and the runner. We ended with verse 12, if you don't remember. Now that's where we were. So we're going to pick it up there, Galatians chapter 5, um, verse 13. So tonight we're going to talk about being empowered by the Spirit, which you can see if you can read on your handouts. <laughs> So the first thing the Spirit empowers us to do is to love. So Galatians 5, um, one, what was 13 to 15. Yeah, I can't read. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And so a, a good chunk of this series or this epistle that we've been talking about for a long time, we've been going back and forth between uh, liberty and legalism. And so Paul is kind of recentering here. He's, he's getting ready to wrap things up. He's made his points about legalism, about liberty uh, pretty well. And now he's going to remind us of our calling. And he said, you have been called into liberty. We are, we are free because we have experienced the forgiveness of God. We are free because or we are free from the penalty of sin because Jesus died for us on the cross. We are free from the power of sin in our lives. We are free from the law, which he's already told us over and over, with its demands and promises of punishment. We are called into liberty because, if you remember this from our first lesson, we are called into grace. Galatians 1 and 6 said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you, into the grace of Christ <clears throat> into another um, gospel. So we're called into both grace and liberty, and these can go together. So it's kind of bookending, if you will, um, this whole thing. So, but before people take what Paul says wrong here, because that's what people like to do, they always have and always will, um, and say, oh, liberty, that means I can do whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever. Um, and that is the case. You are free to do whatever, but if we're going to be free in Christ, it's a little bit different. So Paul says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. So he's warning us here, just because you have liberty doesn't mean you should do whatever you want. Don't use liberty for the flesh. We're free to do whatever we want, you know, in the world, but you know, there are consequences for things that you do. Um, don't use liberty for the flesh, uh, which in my experience is quite often what people do. On one hand, you have the super legalistic folk, you know, rules, 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 obey them, or you go to hell. On the other hand, we have like the super liberal types, you know, anything goes, everything's just all covered by, by grace, and how dare you suggest otherwise, and, and so we're kind of in the middle here is where we should be, and so Paul is warning just because you've been given liberty doesn't mean you get to do whatever it is that you want to do or whatever your flesh wants to do. Sorry, I left that up there. Um, that's counterproductive. We've been set free from the law 
Yes, but we are supposed to also be set free from the sin. So we're not freed from the law so we can sin and do whatever our flesh wants. We're free from the weight and punishment of the law. That's the difference there. So if we aren't free to do whatever the flesh wants, what are we free to do? What are we set free to do? And he says, but by love serve one another. We are called into liberty, we're called into freedom by love to serve one another. Why are you guys all sitting on the same side? Here we go. Trying to get away from you, weren't you? Um, this is different. We're called into liberty by freedom, or liberty or freedom by love to serve one another. That doesn't sound like it makes much sense. We've been set free to serve. That sounds wild. A songwriter, you probably know, said everybody's going to serve somebody. Um, but liberty plus love equals service to others. That's the, the equation that he's given us here. But liberty without love equals slavery to sin. Love always needs to be free. I don't know. I mean, we all should know this by now. But you can't force someone to love you or anything. Um, but when you love someone, you will serve them willingly. Um, it's a little story here. He said, I have an extra day off this week, Carl told his wife as he walked into the kitchen. I think I'll use it to fix Donna's bike and then take Larry on the museum trip he's been talking about. His wife said, fixing a bike and visiting a museum hardly sounds like exciting ways to spend a day off. And Carl said, it's exciting when you love your kids. And when we have time off, what we usually do is spend it doing things for people we love. We don't think twice about it. You know, that's what we do, because we love them, we'll serve them. Whether we thought about it like that or not, that's generally what happens. We serve people we love, and legalism serves us. It's all about me. But grace and liberty sets us free to serve someone else, and not just serve them, because that's depressing, just serving someone without love. If you do that, you're going to end in resentment and bitterness. It's also important to note that we are called to serve with love. Um, and not everyone is called to serve you with love. We are all called to serve each other with love. There's another, sometimes we hear things differently. We're all called to serve each other with love. So verse 14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So he's we're almost out of the law here, but he's bringing it back again, just when we thought we were free from it. He says, you want to fulfill the law, this is how you're going to do it. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus also said, you know, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, whatever, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two things. We do them, you're doing everything. Um, well, Paul says you need to love your neighbor as yourself, because it's natural for us to love ourselves, even those that don't. You know, maybe we struggle with self-esteem or whatever. We still love ourselves. And in a way that we'll, we, we do what we can to protect ourselves and provide for ourselves. You know, we feed ourselves. We support ourselves. Take care of ourselves. Um, and so we, this isn't saying that we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't love ourselves in that sense. But it's saying that that same love and care and support and protection and thought that you put into yourself, that needs to go into your neighbor. And here is an issue because... Like, a lot of things we hear, and we've heard it preached 
over and over and over. We've heard it taught. It's probably one of the most well-known teachings in Christianity. Don't you supposed to love your neighbor? You know, and that in um, judge not. <laughs> You know, the ones that nobody knows they don't know anything about the Bible, but they know they know those two things. Um, you know, we we've heard it, you know, preached and said and all kinds many many times. But for some reason, when we hear it, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other, or we expect our neighbor to love us as they love themselves, or we expect our neighbor to love their neighbor themselves. And it's one of those teachings that we, I find that we kind of expect everyone else to follow and do, but maybe we don't do it like we should. Um, but it's one of those teachings that really only works when everyone does it. If we expect one or two folks to do it, um, it's not going to work. It's, it's an impossible task. We can expect, I don't know, the pastor or a certain saint in the church to to love everyone like themselves, but we won't do it. And we'll expect the Sunday school teacher too, or the one who's leading, or whoever. Well, someone that's been around forever, you know, we'll expect them, but we won't maybe do it. Um, and what, one person can't do it alone. It's impossible. Someone's going to be left out. Someone's going to feel neglected. Um, we only have so much time in a day. We've got jobs, families, responsibilities. Uh, the more involved in church you are, the less time you have. How it works. We only got so much time. And we're a body, right? And so a body is knit together. It's closely knit together. So if I love my neighbor as myself, let's say I've got a couple of, let's say I'm living here between Eunice and Sherman. I love, I love Eunice and I love Sherman as myself. Um, you know, that's, that's good. But then, then Sherman's got neighbors. He's got me and he's, he's got Mary. Right, and he's, you know, and and say so they do it. You know, he loves Mary, he loves me as himself, and that's fine, and that's good, and that's the way it should work. But then, not to single Mary out, but let's say Mary really doesn't care for Jeff. <laughs> this is, I gotta pick. There's only like six people here. Like she lost. Whatever, gee, I don't need to love them. I know I'm getting all the love I need from Sherman. You know, this is good. And then she's oh, I don't, I don't have to do that. And now Jeff, he's not feeling the love. And now he's, maybe he's going to put that same love he's feeling from Mary onto Alice. And now Alice is definitely, she's out in the cold way back there by herself, right? And then she's feeling underappreciated or discouraged because, you know, somebody somewhere is not doing what they need to do. No offense to Mary. <laughs> but that's, and that's how it works. And that, you know, it's not that, you know, simple. That's an oversimplification. It doesn't, you know, work in a line like that. But when only a couple of people are doing it, then others are feeling left out and there's, there's a problem there. It's one of those things that we all have to buy in and we all have to do it in order for it to work. If only a couple do it, it doesn't. It's an everybody thing. Does that make sense? I didn't get the Linda. Sorry. You don't even exist. Because Alice is so hurt for Jeff and Mary. You're on your own. But he says you need to love your neighbor as yourself. This is something we all got to do. As, as always, there's a choice. We, we can either love them or attack them. And so he gives a warning here in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour 
one another. Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So if you're, if you're not going to do this and you're going to fight and attack, that's your choice. You can love each other or you can kill each other. Those are your options. That's, that's pretty, pretty real. White and black there. Um, but if you're going to attack and fight with each other, he says, be careful that you don't kill each other. He's referring to wild animals who would attack each other until, you know, in some cases they would both die from wounds that they had given each other. So instead of fighting, instead of piling these rules on each other, instead of judging and condemning one another, um, he's saying that we're supposed to love each other. And so the Holy Ghost is how we're going to do that. Um, because some of us struggle with these sorts of things. And we need the Holy Ghost working. There are some people that make it very hard for you to love them. And there's some of you, our personalities clash and all kinds of things. And we need the Holy Ghost um, to work. So the Holy Ghost is how we're going to do that. It's going to empower us to love like He loves. And He's also going to empower us to overcome the flesh. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 21. This is the next part. It says this, I say then, walk in the Spirit. And he shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. That's a great word. Idolatry. Not a great sin, but <laughs> it's a fun word to say. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we are, um, we're in a battle Spiritually, I know a lot of times when we come to church and we present everything, well, other people do, all warm and positive and warm and fuzzy um, feeling. But the truth of the matter is we are in a battle spiritually. We are warring against the gates of hell. We are in a fight for our souls and the souls of others. We are soldiers in the kingdom of God. And it's maybe not something that's preached about or talked about as often as it used to, but it's, that doesn't make it less true. There is a war that's going on, even inside of us, and we struggle to do the right thing. We battle against our flesh, we battle against our old nature, and there are things that we try and try and try to overcome, but it seems like no matter how much we try, we can't. It's only by His Spirit that we can. There are addictions that are only broken by the Spirit of God. Um, there are broken hearts that are only bound by the Spirit of God. There's depression that sometimes is only lifted by the Spirit of God. There's forgiveness and restoration that only comes by the Spirit. We face constant battles and they can become overwhelming. The only way that we're going to overcome them is by the power of the Holy Ghost. The only way we're going to be able to fight the spiritual battle is through the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For we, Though we walk in the flesh, I mean, we live in the physical, we do not war after the flesh or the physical. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are in a spiritual battle, and a spiritual battle cannot be won with physical weapons. It's not won online fighting with people. It's not won in arguments. You know, it's, 
We can argue and try to win people all we want with our own reasoning, our own knowledge, might and power, but the Bible says no man comes to God unless the Spirit draws him. We're in a spiritual battle. This battle that we're in is one in the prayer room. It's one through fasting, through the tearing down and pulling down strongholds in the Spirit. This is how we should be fighting. We're fighting to live for Jesus. We're fighting to expand the kingdom. And the only way we're going to be able to do that and win is by the Spirit. And so he says in Galatians 5 and 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If I could define what walk in the Spirit means, because it sounds a little strange, because we don't walk, you know, it sounds maybe like we're floating in the air. I think most of you know what it means. But um, naturally, we do things we want to do. Right? Everybody, uh, everyone tells us to listen to our bodies now. Do that. Um, but walking in this context means living. So how we live our lives. And so to walk in the Spirit is to live in the Spirit. As in, let the Spirit of God, which is dwelling in us, so we've received the gift of the Holy Ghost, let it lead us and influence us in our daily Life. So we're not to be led by our own desires, our own wants, our own needs, our own goals, or whatever. But instead, we're supposed to let Him lead us and influence us. The Holy Ghost will not force us to do anything. Like everything, there's always a decision, there's always a choice that needs to be made. When we talk about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, that's just the Spirit of God or Jesus inside of us. And we know that we've received it. Bible says by evidence of speaking in other tongues. And so when we say the Holy Ghost, we mean the Spirit that's now dwelling inside of us and we have access to the Spirit of Jesus. He doesn't just fill us so we can speak in a different language. That's just the initial sign. But the Holy Ghost is supposed to continue to work in our lives and there are things that He is trying to accomplish. So part of the reason that Jesus gives us His Spirit is so we can walk in it. When talking about the influence in filling of the Spirit, Jesus said this. He said in John 16 and 13, How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Or he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak. And he will show you things to come. He's talking about the Holy Ghost. He says the Holy Ghost is going to guide us into all truth. Not force us. Not push us into all truth. But guide us. There's a difference. Even if we've received the Holy Ghost, we still need to be guided. But some of us don't like to be guided. We like to be the guider. We still have to make the conscious decision to follow the guiding of the Spirit or to walk in the Spirit. He can show us the way, but we have to make that decision to go that way. He can show us where to walk, but we need to make the choice to put one foot in front of the other. Um, a lot of times, people just ignore his guidance. And that's why we can have folks who have you know, received the Holy Ghost and they spoke in tongues and they had experience with God, but there seems to be no change in their life other than that. Or very little change because they're not letting the Holy Ghost guide them. And so the Spirit will guide us into all truth, and that means you really need the Spirit to find the truth. And just because you or I say a thing is true does not make it so. Um, so we need to let him lead us into all truth. He will show us all things. Or he will show us things to come, which is pretty cool. Um, prophecy through the Spirit. Maybe he'll warn us uh, about going somewhere, doing something. Uh, maybe I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you just 
feel, you know, oh, I don't think I should do that. I don't think I should go there. People, some people call it you know, a check in the spirit. Um, but it lets us not to do a thing. That's the Holy Ghost working. It's a warning of things to come. Um, as small as that is, you know, on the grand scale of things. When we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit, are you ready? The Spirit will lead us. And the Spirit will not lead us to destruction. He will lead us where we need to go. So we walk in the Spirit. Um, Paul says, we will be empowered to overcome the flesh. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The English standard says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we make the decision every day. When we get up, how are we going to walk? We're going to walk in the Spirit, or are we going to walk in the flesh? It's an everyday battle. It's an everyday decision we need to make. Every day we wake up, we have to choose. What am I going to do? We've talked about some of these things, you know, before in the past. Um, but acting, I don't know, we'll get there. We live in a, a me first society. You know, people, um, you know, if you remember a few years ago, they were asked to do something to help others. That's what they said. People lost their mind. Um, we live in a me-first society. You know, we'll push others out of the way to get where we want to go, to get where we want, we'll get ahead. Um, we need to get there first. Um, the news, you know, they just, the stories only need to be accurate, it just needs to be first. You know, everyone, it's all about getting attention, you know. Online is just big narcissistic craziness. Um, and we make decisions based often on what's best for me. Not sometimes not even my family or other people, just on me. And the flesh puts me first, but the spirit puts God first. And like we've been saying, there's one or the other. You can't do both. So and we're so in our society that sometimes we don't recognize it when it shows itself in our lives as me first mentality that can creep into the church and it's so it's important for us to walk in the Spirit and let Him lead and guide because when He does, it's going to put everything where it needs to be. It's going to line everything up where it needs to be uh, in the right place in the right order. We won't fall into these traps. The only way to overcome the flesh is by walking in the Spirit. And so he says in verse 17 to 18, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So these things are against each other. Uh, but these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So again, it's one or the other. The kingdom of God is not as complicated as we make it to be. It's one or the other. You walk after the flesh or you walk after the Spirit. You follow the law or you follow grace. You serve God or you serve man. But it's about making the right choices and being led by uh, the flesh or the spirit? Which one are you going to choose? It's two choices, generally, one or the other. And in case you weren't sure what happens when you walk after the flesh, Paul gives us a list of the works of the flesh. We're going to read it. We've already read it in the King James. We're going to read it in the English Standard because it's got up to date versions of the sins. Because it's easier than me going through and explaining what they all mean. Some of them are words we don't use anymore. But he says, 
And it says this list. Now the works of the flesh are evident. These are clear, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. We got that. Everybody knows that. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, and I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But some of this stuff is common sense. You know, the first verse there, um, you know, we know that, that stuff. Everybody knows it. Um, but we can... Um, we can sow seeds of it by what we do, by what we say. You know, you don't need necessarily need to be committing these things, but if we're thinking about it, you know, Jesus says, what do you think in your mind? You, um, you do. And so if we're, um, we can, you know, we can make jokes about it. We can watch things about these sorts of things and um, it gets in our mind and uh, it's just as bad. Idolatry. Um, that is putting anything before God, putting anything above. I'm just going to go through these as quickly as I can. Um, putting anything above God, and this may upset some. That includes anything. You know, some people know more about what's happening in the political world than they know about their Bible, or sports, or you know, work, or money, or whatever. Putting anything above above God. You can't spend all your time working and never give any time to God and expect to, you know, reap spiritual benefits. Um, enmity means hostility or deep-seated dislike or wishing ill will towards someone. So we can't be hostile with each other. We can't um, sow these seeds of enmity or dislike with each other. Uh, and then expect God to move in a mighty way and just sweep in because we're, we're you know, going after the flesh if that's how we're going to do it. Um, strife means a bitter, sometimes violent conflict or an act of contention, a fight or a struggle or an exertion or contention for superiority. And so we can't, again, we can't act with, with, with bitterness and we can't cause conflict with each other and fight and struggle with the church. We can't Contend for our superiority and try to one-up each other. You know, that's the work of the flesh. Um, fight and jostle for a position and expect God to just bless. And you know, I've told you a story last week about a friend of mine that was kind of got caught up in all this stuff and was just judging everyone. And, and that's what he was doing. He was trying to put himself above and put everyone else down because that's how you do it. And it did not end well. So whatever we, you know, the, the um, principle that he's going to mention in the next chapter is sowing and reaping. So whatever we sow, that's what we're going to reap. That's what we're going to get. So we're going to sow after the flesh. I've said this before, but we're going to, that's what we're going to get back. And so jealousy, you know, that's in there. Nothing, nothing good comes from being jealous of each other. Um, fits of anger, that's a harder one. Um, but really, nothing good comes from just lashing out, having a fit of anger. You know, when people say, "I gotta just, I gotta just say this. I'm gonna get it off my chest. I just got uh, why? Make you feel good for five seconds, and then everyone feels miserable afterwards, and you realize how dumb you looked. It sounded, you know, it just 
Oh, no, I'm trying to look at you specifically. But like, and really, no, no good really comes from lashing out or giving in to fits of anger, um, attacking people. We can, we're, we're supposed to be all adults. You know, we can talk to each other, hopefully calmly, without, you know, fits of anger. Um, nothing really good comes from that. Um, in our church, our family, our work, life in general, you know, zero good has ever come from someone throwing a fit of anger. Everyone feels foolish and awkward and upset afterwards. So we can't walk after the flesh and give place for anger and then expect to have peace in our lives. And so, um, if we're, the Bible tells us to live peaceably with all men, we'll maybe get there tonight. Um, but we can't, we can't do that and be given to fits of anger. That's not going to produce any peace. So, if I can be honest with you, um, that's something I've struggled with in the past. You know, I'm not perfect, and I'm trying to pretend I am. But this list is not, um, you know, an exhaustive list of everything wrong that you can do. It's just some examples. But if we can be honest with ourselves in Jesus, there's probably at least one thing on there that we have struggled with. And as I read the list, you were, you know, thinking, I hope it doesn't talk too long with that one. But if we're... If we aren't careful, we can walk after these things. We can participate in these things and allow these things to grow in our, our lives and give place for these works in our lives instead of the spiritual things that we should be. And so we could spend the rest of the day here and going through each and every one of those things, but I think we get the point. If we participate in any of these things, we're fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Um, and we aren't walking in the spirit. So these things that can be hard to overcome, but thankfully we can through the Holy Ghost working in our lives. That's what he said. Um, Galatians 5 and 16, one more time. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if we walk in the Spirit, we're not going to give in to these other things. That's the only way to overcome it. It's the only way to overcome our anger issues. It's the only way to overcome our, all the other things on there. And then you go through it again. Um, but the Holy Ghost empowers us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And to overcome the flesh. And the last thing, which is where I've got a lot of notes, is to produce fruit. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit, you know. That's something we spend a lot of time on if we want it. The Galatians 5, 22, 23. Says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So I think most of us are familiar with this uh, list. I've preached and mentioned it many times. But if we have the Spirit working in our lives, these are the things that we should be producing. These are the things that should be evident in our lives. Um, we're going to try to go through them. And again, we might stop and backtrack to here and start over next week. We'll see how far we get. But we have the Spirit in us, we're supposed to produce this fruit. So again, speaking in tongues is the initial evidence that you receive to get to the Holy Ghost. The abiding evidence is the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so we've got all kinds of people who can speak in tongues, but they haven't let the Spirit produce in their lives. And that's, that's not right. And so if you know, noticed... Um, verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. So fruit here is a singular word. Um, 
These things cannot be separated. That's not a buffet of the spirit. You know, you pick and choose which ones you want. Um, you know, I'm going to you know, love. That's, yeah, I'll take some. That'll take some joy. But patience, no thanks. I don't want any of that. I don't want to be kind, you know. Peace sounds, you know, I like peace, but I don't. Self-control, that's too much work. So you don't, it's one thing. Um, it's a package deal. Um, I'm trying not to spend hours on this, and maybe we'll go back and do the, the flesh and the spirit. I don't know, again, at another later date. But the first one is uh, love. So love is the most basic element of uh, a Christian life. It is the only acceptable motivation for serving God. We're told in the Bible to love our neighbors, to love our brothers and sisters in the church, and even to love our enemies. First John says, we've gone through First John before, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If we cannot love our fellow people, our fellow brothers in Christ, then we cannot love God. But if we, um, if we love the world, John also that we do not love God. Love is a true test. Is a test of true Christianity. Jesus said, "You'll know. Um, they'll know you're my disciples by how you love each other." And so, um, what does your love? Um, where does your love lie? That's the test. If we could really understand what love really means, everything would be much easier. If we truly loved each other, then jealousy, strife, gossiping, complaining, bitterness. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be there in our lives and our hearts. If we truly loved God, then worldliness and rebellion would be gone. And on the other hand, um, if we don't truly love each other and God, nothing is going to make, you know, we're not going to be right at all in His eyes. We can know all the doctrine, we can know all the teaching and have everything lined up, uh, and it's not going to replace that. Dressing a certain way won't make up for a lack of love. Being involved or singing or playing an instrument in the church won't make up for a lack of love. Praying the floweriest prayers does not make up for a lack of love. Speaking in tongues more than anyone else or louder than anyone else does not make up for not having love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. That's not doing anything good or helpful. Giving people a headache, really. <laughs> if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if, I, if I'm crucified, if I'm a martyr for this, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And love, So love is where this whole thing starts and ends. We can do whatever we think is important for the kingdom, but without love, it's pointless. Love is what keeps us grounded. It draws us closer to Jesus and to each other. The next one we got is uh, joy. Joy is something that we should, a child of God should show in their life. Life. 
Um, we can have the joy of the Lord no matter what happens to us. In fact, we should have it no matter what happens to us, even when um, bad things happen. The joy of the Lord is different than any joy the world gives because it is not dependent on any sort of circumstances. What happens around us does not affect this joy. The Bible calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory. We can be poor and have joy. We can be rich and have joy. We can be experiencing loss and still have joy. We can be experiencing blessings and still have joy. It can be raining or sunny. It can be a good day or a bad day. I can be alone or surrounded by people. I can be here or there or anywhere, Sam, I am. And I can still have joy. I can be on a boat. I can be with a goat. I can be in a house. I can be with a mouse. I can still have joy no matter where I'm at. It doesn't matter. Jesus said we can rejoice because our names are written in heaven. In Luke 10, 20, notwithstanding in this Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So we can have joy because we've been saved. Joy can be a weapon and a source of strength. When we're faced with discouragement, we have strength and joy. Nehemiah 8 and 10, let's skip to the end there. It says, neither be sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When we're in a trial or temptation, James 1 and 2 says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. How do we get joy when we need it? Isaiah 12 and 3 to 4 says, Salvation itself is a source of joy. Psalm 126 and 5 says, If we sow in tears, we will reap in joy. Psalm 16 and 11, I think I put these all in there, says um, that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. So, how do we have joy? Um, are you saved? Do you have access to this joy? Are you sowing in tears? You're going to reap in joy. And so, we need to get ourselves in the presence of God. There's joy in the presence of God. We can't allow circumstances to rob us of joy. We can't allow the news to steal our joy and the world to dictate our joy. We have Jesus, and that's reason enough to have joy. Some people just like being miserable. That's a fact. <laughs> I'm going to rather mope and complain and have people feel sorry for them than to turn our eyes on Jesus, from whom comes joy unspeakable and full of glory. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It should be produced in our lives. The longer we live for Him, the more joy we should have. Um, and then we got peace. Philippians 4 and 7 says, The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So just like joy, true peace comes um, from God. True peace that comes from God does not rely on outside things. Um, do you know who has peace when everything in life is going the way they want it to? Everybody. You know, when everything's going well, the kids are listening, the bills are paid, um, there's money in the bank, whatever that's like, I don't know. You know, things are going well. Everyone's got peace then. You know, your health's good, you're eating well, whatever. Everyone's got peace then. That's not a peace that passes understanding. That's a peace that takes very little understanding to figure out. Oh, you've got peace because you got everything. Whoa. You know, wow. No one would say that. Look at you. Wow, look at you. Everything's all good and surprise, you're so peaceful. No, that's obvious. Why? But if your family's in a mess and you're going through a trial and your finances are dried up or whatever, do you still have peace? Now, that, that's when it doesn't make any sense. That's a peace that passes all understanding. Not only can we have 
peace in our mind, and we should if we're trusting Jesus, but we can and should also have peace with each other. That is, um, it's connected to holiness. Hebrews 12 and 4 says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And we talk about, you know, being holy. Um, you know, we need to do that, but we kind of skip the peace part sometimes. And you both working together. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the peacemakers. And a peacemaker is someone who brings peace to an otherwise unpeaceful circumstance. Someone who brings a peace and a calmness to a troubled person or situation. How do we get this peace? Obviously the answer to get all of these fruit is to let the Holy Ghost work and produce it in our lives. The perfect peace comes when we learn to trust God with everything. If we're going to constantly doubt and wonder if He knows what He's doing or think that God's working against us or that He's trying to destroy us or that He's abandoned us or whatever... For one, that's a pretty immature view of God. And for two, we're never going to be at peace. Peace comes by resting in the fact that He is God and I am not. Um, everyone's, I think this is probably everyone's favorite one. Long-suffering or the modern version, patience. Um, this is one of the hardest things to grow. And this is the one that comes often by trial and error. Um, but long-suffering or patience is essential to being a Christian. Jesus says that in patience we possess our souls. In Luke 21, 19, Luke 8, 15 says that we are to run our race with patience. And Hebrews 6 and 12 says that we, are to, that we obtain promises by faith and patience. Hebrews 10, 36 says, For you have need of patience. Then after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. A lack of patience has destroyed many well-meaning Christians. We need to have patience with God and trust Him. We need to have patience with others. Um, so many times we can get upset with God because He's not doing what we want when we want Him to. And why have you answered this prayer? What's taking so long? Why aren't you doing this thing that I know you can do? I pray, why have you answered it? It's been days, it's been weeks, it's been months, it's been five seconds. Why hasn't anything happened yet, you know? And we'll try to force things to happen sometimes, which never works, and it results in frustration, which sometimes results in us walking away from God. And this can all be linked back to peace, if you want, because when we completely trust in Jesus, we are at peace, and we don't feel the pressure and the impatience. The answer will come when He gives it. The door will open when He opens it. He must have a reason. I don't need to know. I would like to, but I don't need to. I don't need to figure it out. I'll just let him do it. Um, we also have to have patience with each other. If the church is ever going to be unified, um, long-suffering and patience are needed. A sign of maturity is being patient. You know, we're all growing. Um, in Jesus, we're all you know, following Him together. So we need to be patient with each other. Because we're all different spots, we're all different walks. Um, you know, some things come easier for others that maybe don't come as easy for me, and vice versa. So we need to be patient with each other. Long suffering <clears throat> comes with meekness, love, a desire for unity, and a desire for peace. Um, we will put up with many things that may irritate us 
if it means unity and peace. And we will learn to let go without, um, we'll learn to go without if that means someone else has. We will keep it to ourselves if that's going to help. That's what long suffering is about. Patience, unfortunately, we learn it from going through things, through trials and stuff like that. It comes from the trying of our faith and by tribulation. I was always told not to pray for patience, because the only way to develop patience is to be put in a place to develop it, to be put in an impatient place. So if you want to pray for it, go ahead. But know that there will be trials, because that's how you get there. Um, <clears throat> gentleness. Some folks um, have a problem with this one. Um, for some reason, we've kind of convinced ourselves that harshness and abrasiveness are the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we like our preachers to get in our face and step on our toes and all this. And we like to, oh, I told them how it was and whatever. But to be gentle is to be courteous, kind, patient, calm, not violent, harsh, or rough. And um, the people that are opposed to gentleness automatically will go, well, what about this instance? What if someone does this? What if they say this to me? What if they do this? Uh, so just stop that. You can be gentle and firm. Being gentle doesn't mean being a pushover. Being gentle doesn't mean being a doormat. We'll take two or three instances in the New Testament where Jesus or the apostles were, maybe we'll say more confrontational, and then we'll try to use that as an everyday example. Oh, what about Jesus flipping the tables? He did that once. You know, he didn't do that every day. Um, Peter, uh, Paul confronted Peter to his face one time. He didn't do it every time he saw him. You know, there's, sometimes there's moments where this is what's called for, but it's not an everyday type of thing. So there may arise situations where, we'll say, a less than gentle approach may be needed. Some folks, um, as much as it pains us, uh, will not respond to any other way for some reason. But you can stand up for your beliefs without belittling someone, without name-calling, without being rude, without being abrasive, um, without undermining or attacking, and even without shouting, you can do that. I don't know if you... It's, it's a thing you can do. If I said, you know, think of the, great, the greatest Christian you've ever known. So maybe someone comes to your mind. You know, and now, tell me, is that, is that person gentle? Would you call them a gentle man or a gentle lady? Generally, yes. Because that is one of the greatest attributes. You think of, oh, my brother Manda, for example. Just a gentle guy. I know he's getting older now, and maybe he, he couldn't fight like he maybe he used to. I don't know, but all I've ever known of him is just just gentle, kind, loving guy, and that's a great example of a, of a Christian. Um, gentleness is is a thing that we kind of just I don't know forget about, but it's a it's a very important fruit that we need to have in our lives. We can't claim to be holy and be sour and vicious to people. Um, 
because they speak different language, vote different, believe different, and attack us, disagree with us, or you have a different opinion. That's how the world operates. Um, 2 Timothy 2 and 24 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, and patient. We are to be gentle with everyone. All men. That's all of them. Every one of them. And that's a challenge sometimes. Not just the people we like or the people who are like us, but the people who aren't. We be gentle with all men. Psalm 18.35 said that his gentleness makes us great. So in a world where everyone is trying to destroy everyone else, gentleness makes a huge difference. Um, I've got four left. We're at eight o'clock. What do you guys think? Wrap her up? All right. Goodness. So, um, goodness includes righteousness, morality, virtue, excellence. It's all kind of in the same umbrella. Um, but goodness, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Being morally good, doing the right thing, not having some secret hidden agenda, treating each other right, not being rotten or selfish. Uh, Mark 8, or sorry, Mark 10 and 18 says there is none good but God, and James 1 and 17 says any good thing we have comes from Him. So our goodness needs to come from God. We can't be good on our own. We need to let Him produce it in us. Romans 11 and 22, the American Standard, this one, says, Behold then the goodness and severity of God toward them that fell severity, but toward thee God's goodness. If thou continue in His goodness, Otherwise, thou shalt also be cut off. So he's given us his goodness. He's shown it to us. And it's our responsibility to follow in that. So there should be, God's goodness should be reflected in our lives as we allow the Spirit to work. Uh, then we got faith. That's one of the, probably the most misunderstood and blown out of proportion words in the Bible. At least the New Testament. I'm not talking about the gift of faith or the, you know, name it and claim it and move mountains and Blab it and grab it or whatever, that hokey pokey stuff. We're talking about just simply believing in God. Not only do we need faith to be saved, but we need faith to continue to follow Jesus. We know that without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 and 6, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So faith, simply put, is just taking God at His word. His word says that all things work together for good. Romans 8, 28. His word says we won't be tempted more than we can bear, and he will always provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 to 13. His word says that he answers our prayers. Matthew 21 and 22. So faith is believing all that. Faith is believing his word. And when talking about the fruit of faith, it also means being faithful, loyal, true, constant, and consistent. There's not much more confusing to the world than a roller coaster Christian. You know those up and down, you know those guys. Up and down, all over the place. Everything's the end of the world one day and the next day, oh, God's been so good. And then the next day, oh, whatever. And all the highs are the highest highs and the lows are the lowest lows. You know, a Christian needs to be full of faith and a Christian needs to be faithful. How on earth, you know, can we, you know, call ourselves a Christian, if we can't even be faithful, um, if we can't believe what the Word says, what are we even doing? And so Romans 12 and 3 says, we've all been given a measure of faith. It's up to us to develop and grow that. 
How do we do that? Romans 10, 17 says, Then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So what we allow into our ears and our hearts, how we walk and live, affects our faith. You know, faith comes by hearing. If we listen to the right stuff, that's going to affect our faith. Uh, it's no wonder some people struggle with faith when all we do is fill our heads and hearts with the nonsense of the world. We're going to listen to endless the endless negativity on the news or the complaining or whatever, you know, and we wonder you know, why we struggle with, with faith. What we listen to matters. If you want to build up your faith, listen to the right stuff. Listen to the word. Listen to biblical preaching and teaching. Listen to uplifting worship music or whatever. Listen to things that are going to build your faith. Don't listen to the gossip and the tearing down and the complaining about the church or looking for all the flaws. Start listening to the testimonies. Start listening to the right things. Faith comes by hearing. My, um, yeah. Let's move on to the next one. Meekness. Um, to be meek, we talked about, a lot about this when we did the, um, the Beatitudes. Um, but to be meek means to be patient, mild, not inclined to anger or resentment. Same with gentleness. It does not mean to be weak or spineless. Meekness includes humility, which is realizing that we are nothing without God. We need Him. Meekness is something anyone who wants to lead or be involved in anything should have. Moses was an incredible leader and was also incredibly meek. Jesus described himself as being meek and lowly. He could have chose anything to describe himself, and that's what he went with. Jesus said that the meek would inherit the earth in Matthew 5 and 5. God wants us to show meekness to everyone. Um, Titus 3 and 2, to speak evil of no man, to be not, no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. That's everything, again. This is something that we should be producing. Not just the ladies in the church, not just the men, not just the leaders, but everybody should be meek. And we should all show meekness to each other. And that's how Jesus chose to show himself. And that's what we should be striving to be like. But it's going to take effort. This is something we've got to work on. Um, for the most part, it takes effort, you know, to be humble sometimes. So sometimes we can get a big head and be full of ourselves and think the only opinion that matters is mine. James says that we have to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Um, it's not your duty to keep others humble. It's your duty to humble yourself. Um, you don't need to humble me. That's not meekness on your part. Produce meekness in your own life and let God... And then work on theirs. Uh, and lastly, the last uh, through the Spirit will do um, temperance or self-control. So a Christian needs to be someone who is self-controlled. There needs to be discipline in our lives. We need to be able to say no to things. We need to be able to follow our convictions, to speak, uh, stick to the word. The bows are done. To humble ourselves. All this relies on self-control. If we don't have any self-control, we will never grow. We will just give in to every whim and feeling and attitude. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, But I keep under my body, 
and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means what I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul said, like, this is Paul. He's like, a, well, this is the guy everyone looks up to. He's like, I need to keep myself under control. And at any moment, I could just, all the things that I preach to others, I just forget it, and I myself would be lost. At any moment, a lack of self-control can undo years of work done by the Holy Ghost. You think of some ministers that fall into sin. Just a moment of lack of self-control just does so much damage to them, their family, the church, the world. Like, this is one of the most important things we can have. As Christians, one lapse can destroy a marriage, a family, and future generations. One lapse of self-control can seriously damage a church. Discipline is necessary to be a disciple. They come from the same word. You can't be a disciple without discipline. So these are some of the characteristics we should be showing. I kind of rushed through them there. Um, but if holiness um, is being developed in our lives, these are things that we should be showing. If we're following him, if we're walking in the Spirit, this is what should be showing in our life. And so in conclusion, just a few more verses. He says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If you live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of being Lord, provoking one another and being one another. So if we are truly Jesus's, he says, We'll have crucified the flesh. We'll have killed the flesh. We cannot walk after the flesh and the Spirit. It's one or the other. And so if we live in the Spirit, let's walk in the Spirit every day. Let's not become full of ourselves, provoking and envying. Let's walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, because we are empowered by the Spirit. Is that clear? I guess it wasn't, I've been this long before, but. All right? Did I go too fast? All right. Wonderful. We kept it under an hour somehow. 57 minutes. It's my record. Let's, uh, let's stand. Let's pray um, together.